This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mirabai Starr. Mirabai Starr is known for her revolutionary translations of John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and Julian of Norwich. She renders mystical masterpieces, accessible, beautiful, and relevant to a contemporary circle of seekers. She speaks and teaches nationally and internationally on the teachings of the mystics and contemplative practice and the transformational power of grief and loss. Mirabai Starr is the author of several books, including With Sounds True, a series of little books on six different mystics, including St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis. She's also the author of a new book, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mirabai and I spoke about writing about deep loss and grief and how doing so can be an alchemical process. We talked about Mirabai's understanding of the dark night of the soul and the necessity of going through such a process of stripping away any sense we have of certainty about the spiritual path. Mirabai also read to us two excerpts from her new memoir, Caravan of No Despair. Here's my conversation, what Mirabai called a holy conversation, and I think it's true, with Mirabai Star. Mirabai, you've written a gorgeous new memoir, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. And I want to start our conversation in a curious way, which is talking about writing about loss and grief and transformation. And to begin, what that process was like for you. And then also I want to talk a little bit, I know now you're teaching other people how to do this type of writing about loss and transformation. So to begin, a little bit about what the process of writing Caravan of No Despair, what that was like for you. It took me 14 years to write this book, and yet this version of the book, this final version that's now out in the world, only took me a year. But it was incubating in my soul all along. And I find that so many people I speak to who have experienced profound, life-changing losses have a story to tell. And it, it seems to need to do that, that work inside of us for as long as it needs to before it can emerge. And in my case, I actually had several false starts. I kept trying to write my story of loss and transformation, but I think the transformation part wasn't quite cooked. 
so I kept writing things that felt more like like a journal, you know, a personal journal, maybe beautifully written, but still it wasn't as accessible as it needed to be in order to be of service to others, you know. And so, and it was still very sad. By the time this version emerged, it was sad, but it was something else. It is something else, too, including funny and including peculiar, and it it didn't stop at sad. And so there there is like this alchemy, an alchemical transmutation that needed to happen in my case, where the lead of my personal story was able to go through its its process, you know, its fire, the fire of creativity. I'm not talking about the fire of suffering. There's that too, but the alchemical process I'm talking about, that fire of transmutation has to do with the creative act itself. So the lead of my personal story had to go into the fire of my creative voice, really, to emerge as something golden, which doesn't mean beautiful, although I hope it is, but something accessible, something of value. You know, that's what gold is. It's a value, both to me and um, I hope to anyone who gets gets their hands on it when they need it most, you know. And so I I feel like there's a, for me, doing, writing the book meant burning. And I burned a lot as I wrote it. And it was okay with me. You know, a lot of times I just sort of looked around at, at the incredible energy that was coursing through my body as I relived some of my life's most painful and in many ways unresolved experiences. And I just sort of chuckled, you know, in in a way just going, wow, this, I feel this in every fiber of my being. Isn't this interesting? There is no way to write this book without immersing myself in the full catastrophe, as Zorba the Greek says. And I did. And I I felt um, ready for that when I finally was able to engage in the process. And, And what I just said, actually, I just had an epiphany about it, that it wasn't like I waited for everything to be resolved or that everything resolved itself in the process of writing this book. What it meant was I was okay with things being what they are, and the groundlessness that was still there, even as transmutation unfolded. Part of what I hear you saying to that person who might be listening and reflecting on their own experience of loss, and is it time for me? Is it the right time for me to dig in and start writing about this and sharing about this? What more could you say to someone about this sense of timing? Well, um, I was trained by Natalie Goldberg, not in the sense that I formally studied with Natalie, but she was one of um, my first teachers, or I was one of her first students, actually, I should say, when she first began writing practice, and I was 12 years old. And she was our teacher at the alternative school that we went to here in Taos, New Mexico, where I live. And she was fresh out of graduate school, degree in English, loved writing, and she was experimenting with this group of 12-year-olds about 
what was called in those days creative writing, but about how to find our true voice. And out of that, she developed what's now known internationally as writing practice. And so my earliest training as a writer came in this way that that cultivates what Natalie called the wild mind, which really came out of her experiences with Zen training and with what's called in Zen beginner's mind. And what that really was about and continues to be about for me every time I sit down to write is about letting go of my preconceptions of what I need to say and giving myself a topic and then just go. Just write whatever arises, not censoring myself, just keeping my hand moving, whether it's um, writing in a journal with a pen or writing on the computer. For me now, there's a seamlessness. I can do that same. I can access the same wild mind on my computer as I can in the notebook. But so the way the way that I recommend people get started to see what you have to say is to make a list of of memories or topics. Just make a list. Like I remembered one about how when when my daughter died, I had that feeling that you sometimes get in a in a dream where you leave the baby at the gas station and drive away. And after Jenny died, I I walked around with that feeling in my belly like, "Oh shit, I left the baby at the gas station." And and so that was a topic, leaving the baby at the gas station, right? And uh, and lots of other topics, um, the dogs that I have loved and lost. So I make a list, and then I give myself timed writing practice in, in Natalie's um, kind of vocabulary, although I do it my own way. I adapt her, her method, but I let myself write story by story by story and then begin to see a certain kind of thread weaving through the stories and whether that can create some kind of narrative arc that will carry the book, carry it as a book. And it doesn't have to be a book. I mean, writing our stories of loss and transformation doesn't mean that we have to create publishable material that stands on its own with a beginning, a middle, and an end. But there is something incredibly healing about not only finally getting the story out in all its pieces and parts and finding some wholeness in doing that, but also then reworking what's come up and out, that sort of journal writing, free writing material, and and distilling it and crafting it and shaping it into something that can be an offering to others so that then it's a gift not only back to ourselves, which it certainly is, but possibly a gift to others. I mean, a lot of people tell me, look, I have this, you know, I've been writing, I have hundreds of pages and I'm ready to publish it. But there is a difference between getting it up and out and taking that beautiful chunk of alabaster that that has come out of you, <laughs> out of this seismic activity at the depths of your soul, Right, this beautiful stone that has emerged from all of that uh, experience, all of that suffering, and then gazing into that stone 
and with your imagination, with the fire of creativity, penetrating the invisible and seeing the sculpture, seeing the masterpiece that lies beneath the the contours of the natural stone and seeing how you can co-create with the universe something of beauty Mm. that you can offer back. Now, share with our listeners, Mirabai, if you will, the basic narrative arc of Caravan of No Despair, of this alabaster statue, gorgeous piece of art that came from the seismic activity of your life. Mm. Well, Caravan is written in three parts, and those three parts only made themselves known to me after I had been writing for quite a while, writing all of these individual stories and memories. So part one is actually my early life, growing up in the counterculture of the of the late 60s and early 70s, um, it, first in New York and then in Taos, New Mexico, which was kind of a, a real um, um, odyssey point for hippies who were looking for an alternative lifestyle. And and the reason I have that whole part one about my early life is that there were a series of of really defining losses in my early life, the death of, of my older brother when he was 10 and I was 7. He died of a brain tumor. And then the death of my first love when I was 14. And then uh, sexual abuse by a spiritual teacher uh, when I was 15. And there were these series of losses. And I realized I couldn't write about the one the, the one major loss that this book revolves around, which is the death of my daughter Jenny uh, when she was 14 and I was 40, unless I had created the context of a lifetime of losses that led up to Jenny's death. So part one is my early life. Part two is my life as a mother and my decision to adopt my children and raising them and leaving my first marriage and and parenting my kids on my own. And then part three is, and part two ends with Jenny's death. And then part three is the shortest but most potent in many ways part of the book, and that is how I integrated this experience of the death of my child with the spiritual teachings that I had spent a lifetime in relationship with up until that point. So that's kind of the, the arc, is early life, my life as a mother, and my life mourning the death of my child. Now you mentioned, Mirabai, that when you were engaged in the writing process that you actually felt deeply all of these experiences in your life. And I'm curious to know if somebody might think, well, is it re-traumatizing, if you will, to go back into, you know, the loss of your brother, of your first love when you were a young person? Or how do we go into these experiences such that they're growthful and not re-traumatizing? Yeah, really important question. Um, I will not sugarcoat it. It is. It can be re-traumatizing, yes. And it's not for the, everyone, and it's 
it's not something I would engage in without lining up your support system so that you have access to the love and care that you need as you navigate your your most painful experiences through the writing process. So I strongly suggest, if you can, writing with at least one other person or maybe finding a small writing group that you can organize yourself, you know, of two or three or more people who write together on a regular basis and everybody's kind of in it together. Maybe not everyone will have the level of pain and trauma that they're writing about that you may be exploring, but still to have a group of people who are sympathetic and supportive and are also engaged in their own excavation process of their life through writing is really helpful. In my case, I just would try to let my loved ones know when I was in the most difficult material, like the whole period where I was writing about the lead-up to Jenny's accident and the accident itself was probably the most excruciating part of the book to write. And I just let my the people I live with know um, that I was going through this and if I was going to behave badly to please try to give me a break and <laughs> and understand that I just, I couldn't stand it, but I had to do it anyway. You know, and they did. They cooked for me and they cleaned for me and they, they picked up a lot of the kind of ordinary life responsibilities so that I could just be in the fire. And when I acted like a bitch, they forgave me because they understood what I was going through. So support, companionship in the writing, therapy, or spiritual direction. Um, I made sure that I had a uh, spiritual director to kind of reflect and, and hold me accountable for what was coming up. Yeah, it's it's um, a huge thing to do, and yet there's something so exhilarating about it that that as I was writing, and I, I think what a lot of people find is that sense of, wow, I wish I had done this a long time ago because it is a really beautiful experience to come face to face with my own shattered heart and see its beauty and its radiance. And it was such a way for me to honor not only my child in writing about her death, which I had promised her I would do in in the eulogy that I wrote for her a week after she died, but all my loved ones. It was a way to honor them by telling their story. Very powerful um, ceremony, that is. My sense, Mirabai, in reading The Caravan of No Despair was that you really didn't hold back. You really put yourself out there in a very raw and vulnerable way. You put it all out there. And I'm curious what that's like for you now as people are reading the book. I mean, it's one thing to do that and put it in a drawer. It's another thing to do that and publish it. <laughs> Oy vey. Yeah. I, you know, I, I say almost on a daily basis, just kidding. I take it back. I take it all back. And I can't take it back. It's out there now. And it is, it is terrifying. In, but I, I say that with with um, 
a kind of wistful humor because it is what it is. I knew what I was doing. I mean, I went into this with my eyes open, but it's still an incredibly vulnerable feeling because I have written many books, as you know, Tammy, on the mystics and either translations of the mystics or reflections and commentaries on the teachings of the mystics. And it's been a really wonderful place for me to abide for the last 15 years. And even though I've written some personal things, personal essays, and I've certainly written uh, memoir bits in God of Love, my book God of Love, this was, I've never really taken my seat in my own experience the way I have in this book. (laughs) And I did it all the way. I mean, from... You did. You have. Sexuality to grief to, yes. And, you know, I... I had the benefit of having some writer and editor beloveds who encouraged me right from the get-go to to tell the truth, to engage in ferocious truth-telling, fearless truth-telling, and not only about experiences that involved other people, but especially about myself. And so my one dear friend Kelly said, don't try to make yourself look good. You know, if it's if you something is arising that feels scary to you, like I can't let people know that about me. Let yourself write that and see what it has to to teach you, and whether that's something that needs to be part of your story. And that permission from the very beginning was exactly what I needed to tell this story and write this book. Um, and so, yes, it's raw but it's also deeply distilled. Like I'll take three lines to tell a story that originally might have been 10 pages because I'm just carving and distilling. But but what doesn't go by the wayside is the part that exposes my my true, vulnerable, sometimes awkward, often surprisingly... Um, uh, what would it be tender being it's like there's a tenderness that I accessed in myself that I cherish in this book Mm. that I I wouldn't give give back Mm. let's hear from Caravan of No Despair Maribai if you will can you read a section of the book for us yeah thanks for asking Tammy I think I'll start I'll just read you the prologue. It's a couple of pages. One, two, two and a half pages. This was not the way I had pictured this day. The first copy of my first book lay splayed on the kitchen table like a bruise. Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century mystic John of the Cross. The quintessential teachings on the transformational power of radical unknowing of sacred unraveling and holy despair. It's black and purple cover, thinly shot with the possibility of dawn. My mother and sister taking turns, thumbing through the pages and making appreciative comments while I paced. I picked it up, put it back down, and resumed my post at the window. Thirty minutes after the UPS truck had delivered my new book, 
the police pulled into the driveway. This was not a surprise. My daughter Jenny had been missing since the night before when she tricked me and took off in my car. All night I rose and fell on waves of turmoil and peace, fearing she would never return, certain that all will be well. Now our tribe had mobilized. Mom and Amy had cleaned Jenny's messy room so that it would feel good when she came home. Friends had gathered like strands of grass and woven a basket of waiting. Others fanned out in search parties across Taos County, from the Rio Grande Gorge Bridge to the Colorado border. Ms. Starr, an impossibly young state cop, stood at the front door holding a clipboard. A more seasoned trooper stood behind him, hands clasped behind his back. I'm Officer Rael, and this is Officer Pfeiffer. Did you find her? Officer Rael took in the halo of heads that gathered around me in the doorway, friends and family straining for news. Would you please step outside, ma'am? Is she in trouble? We need to speak to you in private, said the teenager in uniform. Okay, but not without my mother. Officer Rael nodded. I reached for Mom's hand, and we stepped onto the porch. The policeman got straight to the point. There's been an accident. Is Jenny okay? I grabbed his arm. He looked down at my hand. Your daughter has passed away, Miss Starr. Passed away? How do you know it's my daughter? Maybe they had confused her with some other dead girl. How do you know it's Jenny? Officer Rael smiled a little. The purple hair, he said. The report you filed described her hair as curly and purple. He cleared his throat. The victim matches this description. Victim. Where is she? She's been taken to the mortuary. He looked down at his clipboard as if he had forgotten his next line and had to consult the script. Ms. Starr, we are going to need you to come and identify the body. The body. How did it happen? My voice was calm, as though I were inquiring about the final score in a soccer game. Is anyone else dead? She lost control, speeding down the east side of U.S. Hill, almost to the Penasco turnoff, he said. She was alone. Alone. My baby died alone. My thighs melted and my kneecap stopped working. I slid to the cement slab and kept going until my arms and legs were outstretched. No, I whispered, and then I was wailing. No. In a dark night of the soul, as I had explained in my little book, all the ways you have been accustomed to tasting the sacred dry up and fall away. All concepts of the Holy One evaporate. You are plunged into a darkness so impenetrable that you are convinced it will never lift. You may flail about for something, anything, to prop you up, but you grasp only emptiness. And so, rendered reckless by despair, you let yourself fall backward 
into the arms of nothing. This, according to John of the Cross, is a blessing of the highest order. Tell that to the mother of a dead child. Hmm. A uh, very potent beginning to the caravan of no despair. to read. You mentioned that at Jenny's eulogy, you made a promise that you would write her story. Why was that yeah. so important to you, that promise? Where did that promise come from inside you, do you think? Well, I've always been a writer, and writing is, is the way that I meet the world in my body. And Jenny knew that I was a writer, and she really loved my writing. In fact, I had started a novel um, called My Daughter's Mothers, and it was based, it was not a biographical novel, and it was based on, on my adopting my two daughters and knowing about their birth mothers and being fascinated by these women and their stories and how they lost their, their babies. Um, and And so... Um, I had been writing that book, and I had it stashed in a drawer, and Jenny had found it when she was around 13. I didn't want her to find it, but she, you know, I wasn't ready for her to read it, um, because also my, my protagonist was kind of a, an edgy character. Um, so, but she loved it, and she loved the fact, she obviously recognized herself, her character, and she loved the fact that I was writing about her and always wanted me to finish that book. So that was partly where where that came from, is knowing how much Jenny wanted me to write about her. And this time, you know, when she died, I knew that I would eventually write about her and it would be the real Jenny, not the, fic- the fictitious Jenny. And just that that is, that is my, um, that is the ritual for me. It's a sacred ritual. It's like a shamanic um, practice for me, writing. And I knew that that was what I had to give to my child to honor her. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So here you have your new translation of The Dark Night of the Soul and this incredible loss and we could say initiation of some type in your life happening at the same time. I'm sure you've reflected quite a lot on this connection of timing, the timing between these two things. Tell me more how you understand the writing of John of the Cross and The Dark Night of the Soul and these events in your life and the connection? 
You know, at the risk of sounding grandiose, Tammy, it, it almost feels like my... I I was partly born <laughs> to translate John of the Cross. And I don't just mean my English translation of the 16th century Spanish words, but I mean conveying the essence of this magnificent and and terrible teaching to a contemporary uh, world that may or may not have any relationship with Christianity or even with a theistic concept of the spiritual life. There is something universal about the teachings of the dark night of the soul, as John of the Cross expresses them, that transcends religiosity completely and yet is rooted in the experience of a mature spiritual practitioner. The dark night of the soul is a phenomenon that occurs only, it seems to me, um, to those who have dedicated their lives to the spiritual path, even if they haven't done it in a conscious way. In other words, it's a, it is a symptom of the ripening of, of the Dharma in one's life. And, and therefore, it's a harrowing and demanding part of the path, because in a, in a dark night of the soul experience, what happens is all the ways that we have become accustomed to experiencing the sacred or the spiritual life drop into emptiness and don't do it for us anymore. All the juice goes away. All the magic evaporates. In other words, all the motivating phenomena that kept us on the path is is taken, it's stripped. And furthermore, it's not only a matter of not being able to feel the juice anymore. The concepts, all spiritual concepts, become empty and meaningless, which sounds kind of like a, an existential crisis, but it's much, much deeper than that. It's at a ground soul level. None of, none of our belief systems can hold up in a dark night of the soul. And so when Jenny died, even though I had experienced in my life many, many tastes of the emptiness in my spiritual path, um, on my spiritual path, through deep states of meditation where I had glimpses of the oneness of all that is and deep tastes of that unitive experience, fleeting but profound, none of that came close to the experience of being hollowed out by tragedy. And it did not take me long to recognize that what I had spent all of these years trying to convey an accessible, beautiful language with the Dark Night of the Soul text was unfolding 
in my own being, and I hated it. I hated it with all my might. I didn't want a spiritual experience. I wanted my baby back. So I don't know, Tammy. I don't know why these two events coincided to the day. But I'm paying attention now, 14 years later, and I have been all along. You know, there was this horrible person at one of my first book signings, um, maybe six months after Jenny died when I was finally able to show up for a couple of events for Dark Night of the Soul. I had this new book out, and I had to do something. But I was doing as little as possible in the world. But I, I did a book signing, and I had my posse, I had my support group surrounding me like a militia <laughs> so that I, they could protect me as I exposed myself in the world when I felt so fragile. But, but one of th- these nasty people like a little reptile, poisonous snake slipped in when no one was paying attention and said to me, you know, when Jose Arguelles wrote his mandala book and, and put out this incredibly sacred teaching, his son was killed in a car accident. And, and that was because, this person told me, because he dared to take this esoteric knowledge and and put put it through his own filter and publish it um and it was he didn't have the spiritual uh, authority to do that and so that's why his son died and i suggest mirabai that you oh my consider that possibility in your case and the next thing I knew, I was—it was—I had pretty much fainted in my chair. You know, I was just—I was gasping. I, I, everything was swirling, and it was—it was a horrendous moment. So my friends and and husband just removed her very gently from the premises, and that was that. But you know, I, I had to consider that, Tommy. I had to consider that I dared to take this mystical masterpiece of Dark Night of the Soul. And and translate it. I mean, I know that that's not real, but I had to consider all possibilities. And that was the deepest, darkest, ugliest one. But I couldn't deny anything because I knew that what I that my highest task was to be present with what is everything, all the possibilities and all the realities and not turn away, even though to be present with all that is was impossible. I was doing an impossible thing, like breathing underwater as a mammal. And in doing so, I discovered that I may be a mammal, but I have secret gills that are given to me precisely for such a moment when the tidal wave comes to drown me. Lo and behold, you know, Rumi says, there's a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they cannot hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. And I find that that is what happens in unbearable anguish, in, in catastrophic loss, that we are given this secret cup precisely then. 
Now, I want to go a little bit more into the dark night of the soul and, and first make a comment, which is, Mirabai, I don't think anyone would ever accuse you, at least I certainly wouldn't, of ever being anything like, quote-unquote, arrogant. You're one of the most humble people I've ever met for someone of your great capacity and intelligence. So I think of you as a very, very humble person. It's almost one of the first words I use when I describe you to people. So here, part of your sense of your raison d'etre is to help us understand the dark night of the soul in a contemporary way. So I want to go into it even more in that it seems like you're implying in your description of it that it is a requirement for the depth of the spiritual journey to flower in a person's life. Do you think that's true? This is a requirement? Oh, boy. I, I've never put it that way. But I, you're right, I did imply that today. So I'm going to go ahead and boldly say yes. Because I know that it's inevitable. I don't know anyone who has gone through a lifetime of spiritual practice and spiritual life who hasn't experienced at least some tastes of a dark night of the soul where everything became empty. It doesn't have to be a horrendous, harrowing, tragic event. In fact, I I would be cautious um, about equating a personal tragedy with a dark night of the soul experience because one does not is not necessary for the other mm-hmm. i mean in other words uh, you're not guaranteed to have a true spiritual crisis known as a dark night of the soul experience just by virtue of having gone through a terrible divorce or the death of a loved one but it but what i have discovered is that our painful life experiences can create the conditions in which a dark night might naturally unfold because tragedy and trauma has a similar stripping action to a dark night of the soul experience, which is a a very personal, inner, often invisible spiritual crisis. And that stripping action means that that we we can no longer have that felt sense of connection to God, to the Holy One, to the, to the true self that we had before. We're emptied, we're stripped, we're, it's taken from us. And moreover, we, don't, we can't make any sense of it anymore. So, so grief and loss can give us those very same feelings and, and experiences. They can create the same conditions in which a true dark night of the soul experience may unfold. And and a true dark night of the soul experience is one where we're invited to let go and surrender completely. I mean, John of the Cross says when, when a dark night descends on our souls, we must stop engaging in our spiritual practices altogether. Just lay them aside. Don't try to mend the brokenness. In fact, nothing is broken here. What's happening is that the Holy One is freeing us of ourselves, getting us out of our own way so that the Beloved can actually do her, 
his work deep inside us. And that our task is to just be. He uses the analogy of a of a master painter who sees us and says, Tammy, Mirabai, George, you are so beautiful. In fact, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I want to paint your portrait. And if we were wiggling around and striking new poses and saying, how about this one, God? The master would not be able to create her masterpiece. Our job as the beautiful model that we are is to be still and to just rest while while the the Holy One creates this beauty, this act of beauty that that is us. And so I love that analogy. John of the Cross doesn't use a lot of metaphors. He's very he's a very vertical, not so embodied um saint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's a beautiful analogy. So that's what we do. We we stop trying to run the show and allow ourselves to be empty. So grief is a is an opportunity for that very teaching and it's also as as you so beautifully said an initiation. It's a fierce initiation. It's it's a a portal of fire. And yet it is an invitation to be transformed. Thanks a lot. I don't care. I don't want to be transformed. I want my my child to be alive. But there's nothing I can do about that. And therefore, I can only very quietly and tenderly say, yes. Hineni in Hebrew, it's hineni. It's what little... Mary said when the angel Gabriel appeared in the Christian legend, in the Christian myth, and said, you will be quickened with the Holy Spirit, which is fire, and you will become a vessel for the word of God in the body. And she said, Hineni, in Hebrew, here I am. And that's all we can do. There was a section of Caravan of No Despair that I want to make sure that we talk about, Mirabai, because it really spoke to some of my own inquiry about what happens after someone we love dies, what happens to that being. And it's a chapter that you call Believing Everything, and in that chapter, you described five different possibilities that you experimented with. And I'll just summarize this quickly, and then we can talk about it. You wrote, perhaps she was just gone. Jenny was just gone. And then your second possibility, perhaps Jenny was a spirit now. Third possibility, her soul was doing whatever it is that souls do to let go of this life and ready themselves for a new one. Your fourth possibility, Jenny was dwelling in some kind of beautiful afterlife. And your fifth was, she lived on only in our memories. And what I wanted to begin by talking about this chapter that I liked so much, Believing Everything, is, first of all, were you able to sit with all five of these possibilities and say, okay, 
Any one of these might be true. I don't know, and that's okay. Absolutely. I was able to sit with all of them and be okay with not knowing if any of them was the ultimate truth. Partly because I was trained by John of the Cross, who taught me to not know, who taught me to to rest in radical unknowingness. Partly because I grew up in a in a Jewish family uh, that was n- completely non-religious, but still conditioned by the art of questioning everything. And uh, so I'm comfortable with uh, with inquiry. And also because I've always felt that having any kind of ultimate belief system cuts us off, cuts me off, from that which is most true. And I didn't want to put ultimate reality in a box. And I'm so and also, you know, I feel like the heart that is shattered by loss becomes capable of holding everything, including seemingly contradictory realities. And that's what I found with grieving Jenny's death was that that I had this capacity for all of it to be true. And how, who was I to know that they couldn't all be true simultaneously? I actually still, 14 years later, experience all five of those, <laughs> of those realities. I feel like Jenny is, is almost like an ancestor. My child has become my ancestor and that she is available to me for guidance. And I call upon her and feel her showing up for me in, in tangible ways. My whole writing and speaking career and teaching career is is rooted in that partnership that I feel with Jenny. I also feel like she got lucky and she's the drop beautiful shining drop of water that got to merge with the boundless sea of love from which we all emerge and to which we will all return and has blessedly lost her individuality completely, which I'm looking forward to experiencing one day. And I also feel like she may well have reincarnated, reincarnated, (laughs) and be on this earth again, doing whatever is her work to do, and maybe I'll even meet her one day. All of this is sort of simultaneously true for me even now. Now, Mirabai, I want to talk more about this because I think this is a very brave, bold, and unusual position. And I know sometimes when I have, you know, there's three or four or five, I don't know if I get to five, but whatever, different perspectives that might all be true, I feel a little crazy. Maybe I've done too many interviews for Insights at the Edge. I see too many possible perspectives. I feel insane. How is it that you're okay just resting in that? I want to hear more about that and how John of the Cross helped train you in that. Well, John is all about uh, letting go of our need for answers and remedies. You know, it's interesting. I said that thing about Judaism having this this um, lineage of of questioning, of inquiry, and there's there's quite a bit of evidence that John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, his 
his mentor and mine, um, had Jewish heritage. Uh, so there was this sort of natural, or this comfort with being okay with with questioning and not mm-hmm. always having to have answers. Um, but let's see, how how can I explain how John of the Cross taught me to be okay? Not only did do I learn from from John of the Cross that that it is not necessary for me to explain the universe, but that it is a great gift to r- relinquish all such efforts. That that it, so what John says is that when we let ourselves down into the darkness of the dark night of the soul what we discover is what he calls an ineffable sweetness that begins to bubble up from the the depths of our being and that that ineffable sweetness is according to John of the Cross the love of the beloved who is finally completely available and accessible because we've stopped trying to force uh, our spiritual lives. We've, we've allowed ourselves to be empty, to be naked, so that we could have a direct encounter with reality. That's what mysticism means, right? A, a mystical experience is one in which we have a direct encounter with ultimate reality, with the divine, with the beloved, unmediated through concepts, through established rituals and liturgies and theology. It's a direct experience that can only happen when we get out of our own way. And so a dark night of the soul experience actually reveals itself to be anything but darkness. It turns out, John of the Cross tells us, that it is an experience or an encounter with unutterable radiance, which of course is blinding at first. It's blinding to our old eyes, to the way that we use, we are used to seeing reality, the filter, the apparatus that we use to perceive what is. When that's stripped from us in a dark night of the soul experience, then we have this, this naked encounter with the light, and the light will be blinding until we grow accustomed to that luminosity and begin to see truly. It's not a path for the faint of heart, this is for sure. And yet, it's not something we can cultivate. I mean, we can maybe cultivate the conditions, but we can't manufacture it. We cannot engineer a dark night of the soul experience. It's an experience of grace. Mm-hmm. But we can show up in such a way that if that grace is to descend upon our souls, we can meet it. We can meet it. Now, Mirabai, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how Caravan of No Despair was actually 14 years in the making, and that it, in the last few years it was finally ready to come through you as a book with humor and lightness as well as the depth of heartbreak and loss that you experienced. And I'm wondering if you could talk to that person who's in 
a grief process right now who doesn't feel that lightness, humor, that sense of resolution. And they're maybe even feeling stuck in that part of the process in some way. Yes, it's it, the writing itself can be, as, as I said earlier, the alchemical process that transmutes that lead in your belly of the pain of what you have experienced. That you don't, it's not a requirement that you be okay in order to begin writing your story of loss and transformation. In fact, it's really unlikely that you will be. And by the way, I will never be okay with the fact that Jenny died. Every birthday is, is excruciating for me. Not so much the anniversary of her death, which has almost become like a holy day in my life, a day of ritual and prayer and, and access to a numinous um, reality that sustains me. But her birthdays suck because each year she's not turning another year older. Her friends now in their 20s are having babies, you know, their late 20s, and Jenny's not here to have babies or to celebrate the births of theirs. You know, there were so many times in my life where I still hate the fact that my child is gone. And yet, I don't expect myself or anybody else to be fully resolved before engaging in the process of of writing our story and allowing that writing to change us. And I don't expect the writing to fix us, but it does change us. It changed me in a radical way to write this book. And I still, you know, wake up in bad moods and I still am unskillful in um, relationships and I'm still a regular human being doing all the things that that come with the human condition. Some things I do better than others. Um, but I am changed. And if I, if I waited for some sense of completion, um, some perspective where I could you know, just chuckle at it all and see that the big picture is perfect, I would never have had the incredible life experience of uh, that it was for me to write this book and and share it with the world. You know, it's like it, it, I tell people all the time in my teaching that we are all prophets and that if we were to wait around for a time when we felt ready to step up and say yes to the prophetic task, I don't know anyone who would be being of service in this world. We would all think that we were inadequate to the task. All prophets are reluctant prophets. You know, all the great prophets in in the the mythologies of all the world's religions said some version of who me? Not me, or not yet, or I'll get back to you, Lord, as soon as I have enough money in the bank and you know, my my kids aren't giving me trouble and grief, you know, they will never feel ready. And so we begin exactly where we are and know that that's the holiest place we can be. And so I encourage people to make those lists of of the 
the juiciest parts of your story, or the, even the seemingly most innocuous parts, but the ones that that are rattling around in your in your mind and heart, and make that list and give yourself fifteen minute increments or something like that to just see what comes, and then if it has juice and legs and life of its own, keep going. I do a lot of my best writing um, on little mini writing retreats, like going away somewhere, even if it means just renting a cheap hotel room in the next town and just giving myself three days. That's enough, three days, because this kind of writing is so intense that you could go crazy if you if you were doing anything more than that, unless you're around people who are taking care of you. But to do it alone, I wouldn't recommend too too much time at any one shot. Mirabai, can we conclude our conversation with hearing one more piece from Caravan of No Despair? All right. So, yeah, I think I'll read from... This is toward the end uh, of the book when I'm processing my loss and integrating it. And I'm talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. It wasn't clinical depression. It was a full-bodied sorrow that took my breath away and dropped me into profound stillness. From this quiet space, I could hear the sound of my own heart at last, my vulnerable heart, my big sky heart, my wise and beautiful heart. Unable to hold myself up any longer, I let myself down into the arms of my groundlessness, and I found refuge there. It was a relief to know nothing, to be simply sad. In the darkness, I could rest at last. Maybe this is what St. John of the Cross was talking about, the holy, holy, holy radiance of the dark night of the soul. This is what Teresa of Avila meant when she praised the beautiful wound of longing for God. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union, Rumi said. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. This could be that secret cup. I tipped my head. I drank. Which is what acceptance looks like. Not like light at the end of the tunnel. Not like, now everything's going to be all right. It isn't that Jenny's death was finally okay with me, and I was ready to get on with my life. It was a matter of looking lost, straight in the face, and not blinking. It was a taking of my own sweet self into my arms and forgiving her. What I accepted was that I could not have Jenny beside me in physical form, but my love for her and the fire of missing her was our connection, and she could never, ever leave me. I set about cultivating this new metaphysical relationship with my daughter, I circled back into every phase of the grief journey a thousand times, and each time that I returned to the Garden of Acceptance, the trees were taller, and the fruits were sweeter, and new species were pushing their tender green heads up from the loam. Mirabai Star, reading from her new book, Caravan of No Despair a memoir of loss and transformation. Mirabai, you have provided such an incredible function for the culture in being a translator of some of the great 
Spanish mystics, but I have to say, in coming into your own voice in this memoir, I think your greatest gifts are being delivered. I'm so proud that Sounds True has published this book, Caravan of No Despair, and I hope there's a lot more that we can do together in the years to come. Thank you, Tammy. That means so much to me. And thank you for the invitation both to write this book and to have this holy conversation. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thank you for listening.